Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Our guest of today's podcast is me, interviewed by our guest host, Alan Moore. As leading up to this milestone 200th episode of the podcast, we put out a survey to the listenership via kitsis.com about who to invite as the guest. And overwhelmingly, the feedback from all of you is a desire to hear more of my own story and how it's changed in the nearly four years since I was first on the podcast back on episode 20. In this episode, we'll talk in depth about my own career journey, starting out with how I landed in the financial services industry straight out of college, despite having studied psychology, theater, and medicine, and not finance or economics while I was an undergrad, why I made the leap to launch the Kitsis.com platform and split my time between writing and speaking in the advisory firm, and the reason I spent so much time advocating for smaller independent advisory firms, but recently made the decision myself to switch to a much larger so-called mega RIA. We also talk about the unexpected ways that a career journey can unfold, including why I spent the first three years of my career trying to avoid a role that required any new business development, and then 10 years later became a partner because of my success in bringing in new clients. Why spending years developing financial plans and delivering them to hundreds of clients made me not want to keep building my own client base for the next 30 years. Why, despite being highly risk averse, I've ended up launching nearly half a dozen different new businesses to serve the advisor community. And why, after nearly 10 years of operating Kitsis.com itself as a lifestyle practice, we've made the decision to turn it around and grow from 3 to 13 team members in barely over three years. And be certain to listen to the end where I share more of what happens behind the scenes, the low points I've had along the way of my journey, the techie career I almost ended out with if I hadn't become a financial planner, how an admittedly non-traditional approach to financial planning for my own financial house has been a key to navigating my career journey, the advice no one gave me that I wish I'd had when I started to build and scale businesses, and the system that I've developed to manage my own time and hectic schedule so I can stay focused on having the biggest positive impact I can on the advisor community. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with me. Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where I am your guest host for the day, Alan Moore, and I'm going to be interviewing your normal host, Michael Kitsis. So I actually came on the podcast almost four years ago now, back in episode 20, and interviewed Michael about his career, where he had been, what he was working on, and what he was looking forward to the future. So if you go back to episode 20, you can hear us talk about his career and everything that he's been working on. Well, Michael wanted to bring it back for episode 200 of this podcast as a milestone episode to, to celebrate the success that this podcast has had, the impact that it's had, and, and catch up with Michael around what has changed in the last four years. And as someone who works closely with Michael, I can tell you it's a lot. So we've got a lot of questions and, and just a lot to hear about. So with that, welcome Michael Kitsis to your own podcast. 
Thank you, Alan. I'm looking forward to being here. Appreciate you coming back to rejoin as as guest hosts again. I'm sure it'll be strange just for people listening to hear a different voice and questions from the other direction. But you know, as we were queuing up for this episode, I'm not a big one for celebrating milestones necessarily, but you know, it's 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 fun to celebrate some of these as we cross big thresholds. You know, for episode 100, I was really excited. We had Joe Duran on from your native capital before the whole Goldman deal and a bunch of stuff changed. It was have a really cool moment and snapshot in time. And so as I was coming up on episode 200, I was kind of brainstorming around like, who would we do? Who would be a neat, unique guest that has a lot to share? And so we, we put this out as a poll to the, to the listeners through all of our different social media channels. And overwhelmingly, the number one response that came back was, we, we actually want to hear like Michael's story and what the heck Michael is doing and how he does all this crazy stuff and does he sleep, which is still the number one question we get. So we'll probably get to that at some point. So uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of come back. Everyone said they wanted to hear more of the story and the journey from my end. So I'm, I uh, appreciate you, you know, guest hosting for us to do Milestone episode 200. And, uh, and we just actually crossed the milestone of 4 million downloads for the podcast as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a milestone month of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for listeners to hear that, you know, it, it's difficult sometimes to stop and be and, and sort of reflect and, and think about what you've accomplished. But, you know, 200 episodes when you're publishing weekly, that that means, you, you know, I, I, I looked it up. January 3rd, 2017 was uh, episode one with Rick Kaler. So it was episode one, four years ago here shortly. And, uh, you know, it's a huge accomplishment. Four million downloads, 200 episodes, which in Kitsis podcast world is about 300 plus hours of content. And so it might be a little bit more than that. Uh, eh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just awesome to, to see. But, you know, I do want to start out, you know, if anyone wants to hear, my, you know, your entire career story sort of up through episode 20, you can go back and listen to episode 20. Highly recommend it. But we can at least sort of give a, a, an overview for someone who doesn't want to do another hour and a half on top of this one around the story uh, of just how you got into financial planning. Like how did we get Michael Kitsis instead of, I don't know, healthcare or, or tech, or I don't know, how do we get you instead of Silicon Valley? And so just, just sort of a high level, sort of how, how you ultimately got into financial planning. Uh, so like, you know, my, my story, like my actual connection story to the industry really is kind of an, an ironic and somewhat bizarre one and goes, goes way, way back to to literally before I was born. I just realized like this sounds like a horribly long story. I promise it's not going to be like <laughs> five hours later or we're in 1987, <laughs> but bear with me. So so my maternal grandfather, my mother's uh, father, sadly passed away when uh, when my mother was still very young. And so my grandmother suddenly found herself a widow with two young daughters, uh, my, my mother and my aunt, and, and had to go to work to support the family. And so the job that she got was she became a secretary for a life insurance agent with New England Life all the way back in the 1960s. And so she had this connection to the industry. She was a secretary for this gentleman, for this agent for many years. And so he basically got to watch my mother and my aunt grow up a little bit as you know his secretary's daughters who were around quite a bit because she was a, a single mother widow for a period of time. And so 
as they were going through this, you know, my, my mother grew up, ultimately got married. And when my mother married my father, this gentleman, you know, my, you know, this would have been like my mother's mother's boss said, oh, well, my secretary's daughter is getting married. Like, what do you give as an appropriate wedding gift when you're a life insurance agent? Well, you give a life insurance policy to the new husband. So he gave my father a New England life, a whole life policy, which of course was the gift that keeps giving because then after that, you have to continue to pay the premiums. You probably got the trails going forward. So it was a gift with a good ROI as well. So my father had this life insurance policy from 1973 when my parents got married. And so fast forward 25 odd years later, it's the 1990s. I have gone to college. I was a went to a liberal arts school, Bates College up in Maine, where, as I like to put it, you know, they do a fantastic job of teaching you to think, but don't necessarily prepare you for anything in particular. God bless the liberal arts education. So I was a psychology major, theater minor, pre-med student. And the only thing I figured out by the end of school was that I did not want to go into psychology, theater, or medicine. And so I was coming up on graduation. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had only just made the decision I didn't want to go into medicine. And this was after, you know, in college, like I was an EMT. I was like doing internships in local emergency rooms in the town where the college was. Like I was very deeply immersed into the path of going into medicine and made a fairly hard stop, like left turn decision just a few months before graduation to say, I'm just not sure I want to disappear for the decade of my 20s in med school and residency and, and and everything that goes with it. And so suddenly I'm trying to figure out what on earth am I going to to do. And so at the same time, my father gets a, a call from the local New England life insurance agent who says, you know, Mr. Kitsis, you have had a policy with us for almost 25 years. And it looks like no one has been out to see you about your policy in a very long time. So those of you from the insurance world will kind of recognize this. This is an orphan call. My father's policy had been orphaned because, of course, the you know his mother-in-law's boss had long since retired and gone out of the business. So my father's was just an unassigned policy. And so someone decided to pick up the phone and call the orphan policy and say, hey, can we come out and do a visit? So this life insurance agent came out and you know did a policy review and you know, I'm sure uh, explored whether there are other business opportunities. But as it turned out at the New England Age, not sales managers are producing agents, which means the people who manage and recruit also have to do client work. And this was actually one of the sales managers who was doing orphan calls uh, while also keeping an eye out for recruiting. So after he finished the meeting with my father, he like takes off his life insurance agent hat. He puts on his life insurance sales manager hat. And he says, do you know anybody who might want to come into the business? And my father said, well, funny thing, my son is about to graduate from college and has no idea what he wants to do. <laughs> You should talk to him because he needs a job. And so I took the interview and I got the job. And so I graduated from college on you know, Memorial Day weekend of 2000, uh, graduated on Saturday, packed everything I owned on Sunday, drove home on Memorial Day Monday, and Tuesday morning, the first day after graduation, I reported for work at a life insurance company and entered the industry having absolutely no connection, relationship, finance background, or anything aside from my grandmother's ex-boss 30-odd years prior had uh, given my father a life insurance policy. You know, I have to admit with the just sort of bizarre nature of some of the the story, the, the part that really hangs me up is that you were an EMT, which means someone out there's life was saved by Michael Kitsis in the back of an ambulance. 
just want to put that out there in the world that someone it was an, it was an interesting <laughs> time someone may remember there were probably pictures from a long long time ago <laughs> so you you get into insurance fast forward it clearly works out for you because you're now a, a very successful insurance sales agent <laughs> yes yes not not so good at prospecting as as i guess some people have gathered from the podcast and the blog and the rest like kind of introverted, prefer the sort of stuff where you put out the content and let people find their way to you and not, well, back then, like cold calling, cold knocking, you know, this was before the do not call list. So, uh, I mean, I started for the life insurance company, like with a, a stack of phone numbers to call, uh, to cold call. Like that was it out of the gate. It was awful. I was awful at it. It lasted less than a year, but like the one saving grace to it. So there were there were, gosh, probably like 20 or 25 life insurance agents in that New England office when I was there. And there was one agent in that office who was a CFP, uh, actually CFP, CLU, CHFC. He had done his education. And just in this world where, again, it's two, it's 2000s, the peak of the tech boom, the crash has not really started and gotten underway yet. This is the heyday of variable universal life policies because you know we've been in a nearly 20 year bull market so you know we conservatively illustrated them at 12 percent straight line like that was built in the software by default and so everybody in this office sells variable universal life that's the deal like big whiteboard where people write their name up there and how much in premium they've sold that month and try to get to the top of the chart every month like the whole thing all all the sales stories and stereotypes are true and then there was this one guy it was like yeah, I just kind of find out everything about their situation and then I just help them with whatever they need. I was mind like, mind blown. I was like, that, uh, not even mind blown. It's just like, that just seems easier, to be honest. <laughs> like, it just seems easier to ask them what their problems are and give them the things they want rather than just pitch the VUL policy to every single person you meet. Now, of course, the problem was. Nothing else paid as well as BUL. So this guy did not get the respect around the office for solving people's problems. This guy got the snubs for being not a big producer because, you know, he sold lousy things like mutual funds that back then only paid 5.75% upfront when you could sell BULs and get 50% of target premium in the first year. So, you know, I, I, I kind of sidled up and, and, and had the opportunity to, to mentor my, uh, be mentored by Gent, myself under this one advisor who had this alternative approach of, well, I just try to understand what people's problems are and give them the solutions they need. And like, that was my entry into the world of certified financial planner and this financial planning thing as an alternative to, to life insurance sales. And, and just said like, okay, this selling thing isn't working for me, or really this prospecting thing isn't working for me, but this, you know, understand people's problems and then try to solve them. I kind of like that. That seems neat. I'm going to try more of that. And so as I left the life insurance firm, because I flat out wasn't getting any business done and wasn't going to qualify my uh, my contract on the first year's renewal, I decided to start looking around and figure out, like, is there any other kind of job I can get where I don't have to go get clients? Like, I'm fine doing the financial planning stuff. I just don't want to have to get clients. And so I actually went to the managing partner of that firm. And I'll, like, I'll still never forget this. This was like one of the first... Well, I guess certainly within my career, like the first life-changing moment in my career, you know, I really liked doing the financial planning analysis stuff. I did figure that out in the pretty quickly in the first year. And so I quickly became the guy that whenever anybody had to do a financial plan, granted the financial plan pretty much always led to a variable universal life sale, but they still did 
planning. We took client data. We put it in the planning software. We ran projections. It was you know the days of financial profiles before it merged in with Nava Plan, and and like I became the go-to on the financial planning software. And so I went to the managing partner of the firm. I said, "Look, we both know that I'm not getting it done prospecting. This isn't working out, but." I really like this planning stuff. So here's what I would propose. I want to get paid $25,000 a year to be the one that just sits here and does everybody's financial plans. I will take that salary, which granted 20 years of inflation adjustment would have been a bit higher now, but it was a low number. <laughs> Even then, like just, you know, I was a single dude in 22, so I didn't have much, much expenses to keep up. Like pay me $25,000 a year just to, to be the one that does the financial planning software stuff and supports like 25 agents in the office. There's plenty of financial planning work to do. And he turned me down cold. Like I don't see the value in that. And I don't understand how that would provide a return to our agency. And so I had no choice but to look for other jobs and opportunities. But I was convinced like someone must do enough financial planning that they actually care about having someone who wants to just study this and do more of it. I'm, I'm going to find that. And so you know, like all this built up to a particular day where I was still trying to nerd out the financial planning software. I came into the morning sales meeting late because I'd actually come in early Monday morning to help another advisor do a financial plan in the planning software. And they got so sucked into it. I didn't realize the time and I came in the Monday morning sales meeting late. And so the managing partner threw me out of the meeting and said, you know, I got made an example of like, if you're not going to show up on time, kids, it's just don't show up at all. So I was like, fine. So I went downstairs, pulled out the want ads, started looking, found my next job. And, and ended up finding a job with what I guess we would now probably call like part client service administrator, part paraplanner with an independent broker dealer firm that was in the area. And one that just said like, we just want someone that can support us in all the financial planning stuff. They were a, a real financial planning centric firm, plans for every client. It was BD based, but it was, you know, in the truest sense, just we're going to do good quality financial plans for clients. Everybody needs something because no one does their financial life perfect. And we'll just help them with whatever it is they need and we'll get paid for that. And I got to live a job of, okay, I just get to nerd out on financial plans and then go nerd out on financial planning education. And that was when, you know, all the alphabet soup started building up and I get to actually focus in the financial planning world. So I, I do think that there's an interesting point there for advisors and, and business owners in general that in the end that it, that you know manager didn't pay you twenty five thousand dollars because it wasn't in his business plan, right? They just didn't have a plan to hire that person. Couldn't even see that being a position. And so be open, you know, when when you find right people, but that you haven't quite helped them find the right seat yet. If you have someone, you're like, wow, this person's super smart. They're doing really good things on this side of the business, but they're not doing sort of the core of what they're supposed to be doing. Don't just kick them out the door. Maybe give them an opportunity to prove themselves because egg on the face now. But, you know, if we fast forward sort of the, your transition, you know, into financial services, moving from insurance to, to financial planning, there was another big transition for you. And that was, you know, moving from being a financial planner to being a financial planner's teacher if you will. And, and, you know, when we put out a call for questions for this episode, we got some that said like, how many clients does Kitsis still work with? And when was the last time you had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a client inside of a financial planning firm? Oh man, I, many years now where I was, where I was leading clients directly. So I, this kind of evolved in stages for me. So, you know, the, the first segment of my career, like I went from the insurance company, to the broker dealer world, 
I landed in a in an independent RIA. My focus there, like, why well, I took a job as director of financial planning, which initially was a you know director of a department of me because the firm was under two hundred million dollars. But then huge growth cycle, and like we went from under two hundred million to over eight hundred million in about five years. And so then suddenly, like, my department was me, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five, and then suddenly I was leading financial plans and delivery of plans to every single client I probably delivered. You know what it was four or five hundred plans over that over that time period uh you know we just got a really efficient process like the partners were fantastic at going out and doing business development and growing the firm and kind of setting up all these financial planning meetings then i would go nerd out do the analysis and present and deliver plans to to clients and then they could take relationships and run with them on an ongoing basis and so you know this sort of went through two shifts for me in the first was in 2008, early 2008. So unbeknownst to all the crazy stuff that was coming later. And it, and it was early 2008 that I made the first shift to say, you know, I'm, I'm living in this world where I'm doing all this financial advising work. And, and in many ways, it was kind of my dream job because I finally got to the point where I just get to do financial planning with all the clients and I didn't have to go do prospecting, which is the whole thing I was trying to avoid from, you know, the very first life insurance job that didn't work out. Uh, but I had started doing a little bit of writing and speaking back to the industry and was really enjoying it. And, and just, I liked getting to, I liked writing, I liked speaking, I liked teaching. It just felt like, you know, I would take all these issues that we were dealing with with our clients of how we talked through them, how we handled them and, you know, the analysis that we did and what we delivered and saying like, I'm learning all this stuff. We're figuring out, we're doing it with clients. I feel like I could share this with other people and that it would probably be useful to some others as well. And, and so the, the shift I made in 2008 was launching what you know, we now call the Kitsis Report, which was this monthly white paper we were putting out. There was no blog back then. It was just a white paper. You paid $150 a year to get 12 issues a year of kind of super nerdy, deep dive financial planning stuff. So still the same sorts of things that I write, but just one one giant post. They were actually even longer than the blog posts, like really long, 20-page sort of white paper that you could learn from and get CE from and and just do deep dives on financial planning topics. And and I really built at the time with an eye towards Bob Virus, who I know is someone that many podcast listeners know. You know, Bob is absolutely brilliant at writing about practice management. He has run a newsletter for I think almost 30 years now on practice management issues where he emails it out once a month and you pay an ongoing subscription. I was like, Bob has this amazing business where he just learns about practice management in the industry and then shares it out with advisors and he gets paid for that. I'm like, I want to do that, but I'm going to do it on nerdy financial planning stuff. And so I went, I actually brought this as an idea to Bob and Bob said, like, I think that's a great idea and I'll help you get it launched. And so Bob actually like helped me set up the original website with his web developer, showed me the software and the tools that he uses to manage membership and collect payments and send newsletters out and all this stuff. There wasn't a lot of technology to do that back in 2008. So it was kind of a, a tough learning curve to get through. But, like he showed me all of that. And then he actually helped to get it launched. Like he sent an announcement to his mailing list about the launch of our Kitsis Report newsletter and brought me the first chunk of, of subscribers that I needed to actually be able to survive making the leap. And uh, I think that's still part of why I love just like finding startup companies and businesses that we can highlight on the blog and let other people know, Hey, like here's some people over here that are doing cool things. I got no relationship to them. Just they're doing cool stuff and y'all should check it out. Like for me, it's sort of this, 
I feel this never ending pay it forward desire that like, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing if Bob Beerus hadn't helped launch what I did. So I want to try to help. I'll use our platform to launch as many others going forward as well. When just in general, like you give away so much content for free. I mean, there's just this underlying abundance mentality of, you know, you launching your newsletter wasn't going to impact Bob's business. If anything, you probably have cross promoted each other to success even more so than either one of you would have been independent. And that's really sort of across the platform and across the entrepreneurs that you've worked with uh, over the years, you know, just the reality of, of, of sort of that abundance mentality. Yeah. And, and so when I made that shift in 2008, I, I went back to the advisory firm and said, look, like, here's the deal. I, like, I got an itch. I need to scratch. I want to go do this thing where I'm going to write and speak. But like, I love the firm. and I love the work that we do with our clients. I'd love to still have some role here where I can support on client issues and I can still come in on client meetings with all like the messy stuff where you need, I think affectionately at the time, we call it the nerd of last resort. Let me still come in and support on, on complex client issues. But I just, I don't want to run this financial planning team anymore as my full-time job because I want to go do this writing and speaking thing. And so God bless, they said, yes. I don't know if they were just sort of betting that eventually it wouldn't work out and I'd come back to them full-time anyways. Uh, so they wanted to keep the connection, but you know, forever thankful. Like they said, yes, it did make it easier to do the transition because I, I took a big step back from my salary, but it didn't go quite to zero because I still kept a, a role in some job duties with the firm. And so then I spent a whole bunch of years, you know, from essentially 2008 up until last year in kind of this hybridized role with the firm where I wasn't taking on client relationships directly in a lead advisor role because I wasn't going to be in a position to service them full time up to my own standards when I was doing that much travel. But I wanted to keep the one to one client interaction of being able to come in for clients of the firm and advisors of the firm and help on complex planning issues. And so I was still, you know, pulled in on weird Roth conversion scenarios and complex estate plans and strange documents and all those kinds of scenarios. Cause it was really important to me to, to like never forget what it's like sitting across from clients. Although I did move away from being, you know, in a lead advisor role. Cause I, you know, I know for some advisors, like love those ongoing relationships and working with clients. I'm one of those people, well, I'm, I'm literally fairly strong ADHD. Like I kind of need the new ongoing stimulation and the new challenges. And just, I was one of those people where like managing my book of clients and having like the same conversations with the same people who were doing the same screwy stuff for the fifth, the seventh, the 10th, the 15th year. Like I just looked at it from a career end and said, I'm not going to be happy doing that. Like I like coming in to do the one-to-one work to solve the challenges and the problems, not for the indefinite client relationship. And so I like I was lucky to be with a firm that would let me do that split. They would keep leave relationships. Obviously they were happy to because that's what drives the revenue for the firm. And I could come in and still do the one-to-one client meetings on the stuff where I had technical competency and expertise to help them out and kind of everybody wins for it. So, you know, fast forward a little bit. Now you have made a bit of a of transition because, you know, much of your career has been spent supporting sort of your extra businesses, which I guess we can talk about with XY Planning Network and Advice Pay and, and partnership with with myself and, and some others. And then you've got FP Pathfinder and and other things. I mean, you know, you have your hands in all these pots, but they're all really centered around these sort of solo independent advisors. 
And so last year, you know, you made mention with the transition last year, you made the the leap to or the transition over to Buckingham. So can you talk about that transition, sort of the decision to make that move and ultimately why you made that transition? Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. We got a lot of questions from readers about this. Yeah, I, I got a lot of them directly as well. We'd actually uh, put out a post on the blog earlier this year when the, when the news went out officially as well, that you know we've done so much work around solo advisors independence. And just for those who aren't familiar, like Buckingham is in that category of, I guess, the so-called mega RIAs. It's about $50 billion under management, grew from an independent RIA from some founders who came out from the large firm accounting days 30 odd years ago and just built a firm from scratch that's had an absolutely incredible compounding journey. And so it, it, it Buckingham has both the, I guess we'll call it the, the traditional wealth management business that so many of us do with uh, almost 140 advisors, uh, almost 40 branches across the country, nearly $20 billion in that side of the business, and then also has a, a TAMP solution for other advisors. So some know that as BAM Alliance, uh, which was their, their former name for Buckingham's TAMP. Buckingham also merged two years ago with Loring Ward, who some people knew as a, a DFA TAMP as well. And so the, the combination of the two of them now with subsequent growth is about $30 billion doing business now as Buckingham Strategic Partners. So yeah, sort of this like this mega wealth management plus TAMP business when I've spent all the rest of my time over very heavily in, in small advisors and solo RIAs. You know, for me, this is kind of a, I guess, a deliberate dual theme that, you know, we talk so much in the industry right now of, are the small firms going to survive? Is the solo doomed? Do you have to be big and have economies of scale in order to survive? And then as a few people said, well, and lo and behold, kids went to a giant firm. You know, I think the truth, frankly, is that it's, it's both. Like it really is both because on the one hand, you know, the solo advisor to me, I think is like the position of the solo advisor today is fascinating because I look at this literally from the perspective of of my career and the and the journey. Like when I think back to the firm that I joined twenty years ago, right after I left the life insurance company, you know, it was it was three advisors serving an ongoing client base, doing financial planning, and there were eleven staff members, I think supporting that firm, like admin, paraplanning, trading, operations, all the different stuff that went on just to make sure that everything that needed to happen happened across the firm. And if I were to look at that firm today, I suspect that firm would run incredibly well with probably three or maybe four support staff. And their headcount would have gone down by two thirds because technology today is just freaking amazing compared to what it was 20 years ago. And, and when I think about that, even down to solo advisors, like there are solo advisors that do today with a handful of software programs that cost 49 to $99 a month, what 20 years ago would have taken uh, you know, two or three staff members to be able to do. And so the interesting thing to me, like if you translate back to 20 years ago, it was a world of mega firms. I mean, RAs hardly existed. The average RA had like $18 million and an assistant. You know, we've had a number of guests on, on this podcast who could talk about like what it was like starting an RA back in the 80s and 90s from like they're, you know, hunting for food and scraps. Most of them started businesses with credit cards to be able to afford their staff members. It was so costly to run a business. And yet 
this tiny little nascent independent movement has become the giant growing force in the entire industry as the only channel that's growing. Everything else is flowing to it now. And it was all predicated on small, horrifically inefficient, staff-intensive, no-technology firms that still beat the big firms by simply being more focused on clients and closer to them. And so now when I look at it today, like you can still be an independent, you can still be closer to your clients, you can still be more focused on them, but now you can do it with a minuscule fraction of the cost that was there before. And so I've never understood this whole discussion that our industry likes to put out there that you have to be huge, like the people saying you have to be huge to survive are mostly the RIAs who are only here because they were not huge and they beat huge firms in order to grow to get to where they are today. I'm like, why would it not work now when the technology is so much more efficient? When you built it from scratch with no technology, no ecosystem, no support, a ton of staff and horrible profit margins, and you still beat out wirehouses and major broker dealers, insurance companies and banks and everybody else that dominated this business 20 years ago. So like, I've never been more bullish on the opportunities for independent solo advisors and small firm teams and just what you can do with the efficiencies of technology and the, just the ecosystem support, the service providers, the consultants, like everything that exists today that wasn't there then. Like if we could build it then, we can certainly build those firms well now. But, you know, there is some cool stuff you get to do with size and scale. And so one of the things, frankly, that, that drew me to Buckingham is just having a large firm environment where I can take the ideas that we write about in the blog that I was already trying to put in practice in the advisory firm where I was previously. And now we get to do it in a really large advisory firm where you know this reaches hundreds of advisors internally, thousands of advisors through the TAMP, tens of thousands of clients. And you know, part of the drive for me has always been essentially about the like the reach of could have had a great career helping out our few hundred affluent clients get a little bit more affluent where we were all the way back in the firm I was in in 2008. But like that just doesn't do it for me. I need to, I need to have more impact out there. I think as Mark Andreessen says, like some people just want to make a dent in the universe, right? You can't change the course of time, but if you do well, maybe you can make a small dent in the universe. And, and I'm one of those dents in the universe kinds of people. And so Firms like Buckingham that just have the depth of team and the resources and the size and the scale, you know, instead of a like, oh, here's an idea, maybe in a year or two, we can grow enough to try it out. It's like, here's an idea. Well, cool. Put together a business plan, a resource plan, and then we'll go ahead and put that through the committees. And if the numbers all add up, then we'll go ahead and do that now. It's like, cool. I like the idea of having some resources to be able to put some stuff into practice a little bit faster and with a wider reach. Yeah, but but you said committees. Like there's more yes, than one. <laughs> there are there are it is a large firm. There are committees. I'm starting to sit in on some of them and learn the dynamics of committees. Uh, you know, there are trade-offs, I will admit there there are trade-offs that come in in large firm environments, but I I really see the opportunity on both ends that you know, I don't think the future's ever been brighter for small firms and solos. Like we can be so efficient, we can be so nimble. The overhead stays so low because so much can be driven with technology and very little staff. It's an incredible opportunity. You know, there are some economies of scale when firms get really, really big in the advisory world, not necessarily actually scaling advice. It turns out cost to deliver advice is pretty constant, even when you get large with scale. But 
technology and operations and compliance and, a lot, and marketing and a lot of other systems actually scale very nicely in advisory firms as they get larger and just you get more resources to do more things. And so I, I really see a future that's very bright for large firms that want to get huge and smaller advisors that just want to stay small, serve their client base and their niche or specialization and be awesome at it. The the only group I'm actually kind of negative on is is essentially what I call the dangerous middle, like the the firms that are too big to be small and too small to be big, where where I think it's a where it's a tough space. And and frankly, if you just look at sort of the industries and, and numbers that are out there right now, like that starts at a couple hundred million dollars where where you start hitting that dangerous middle. And like I don't think you get out of that dangerous middle until you're literally several billion dollars under management, which you know is is tough because a lot of advisors will literally spend a lifetime just trying to go from 500 million to a billion or two billion dollars if that's your aspiration and you know I've, I've lived a version of that journey like you get to do some cool stuff but you always feel like you got to grow larger to finally get to the size to do the things that you want to do and then when you get there you find out oh no actually there's still more stuff that we need to hire because we're larger and now it's more complex and we need a little bit more infrastructure and people to manage people and people to manage systems and it is a challenge. It is a real challenge in that middle. I, I don't. I don't like quite want to say like it's a it's a graveyard or anything. Like anybody who's huge only got there because they went through that dangerous middle. There are firms that get through and get out to the other side, but it's a tough space to be in. And, and frankly, I think that's why you see a lot of mergers and consolidation in the industry right now of firms in that you know five hundred million up to up to two or three billion market that are getting acquired these days. Because they're they're hitting that dangerous middle and it's really tough and it works better to be tucked into a, a much larger firm that's already on the other side of it. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have one more question sort of a, a, to catch people up to where we are today. And then, and then I've got a whole slew of questions for where are we going. One of the things that I, it may surprise some listeners is actually the, that the Kitsis.com team is not just Michael Kitsis. And, and, but it wasn't too long ago that it was. And really the last time we recorded an episode, it was probably you and you had Rachel on your team. And I don't know that you had anybody else, but, but really since then you've been adding team into support because uh, obviously the, the kids.com platform with the podcast and the blog and the research and, and, and courses and the CE programs and all of that have grown. So can you just talk about sort of the, the evolution of the kids.com team that you've gone through over the last three and a half, four years? Yeah, it, it's been an interesting transition. And part of this has really been essentially like the evolution of the business model as, as I've envisioned it and I've been trying to to build for uh, you know essentially now more, more than a decade since we launched what was Kitsis Report and then became the Nerds IP blog and 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 the rest of the business. And so, you know, for the for the first five years or so from like twenty ten to twenty fifteen. Like my focus was really just putting content out there, building our brand, building our visibility, trying to give back to the advisor community. I was, as I would put it, I was kind of literally in the expertise business. And so here's my expertise. If you like this, I'd love to work with you more. And so, you know, that that created opportunities for speaking engagements, that created opportunities for consulting engagements, and, and that actually created opportunities for bringing in clients. And, you know, one of the ultimate ironies to me of the journey uh, of going through this, like, I left that life insurance agency and bounced around to several firms before I landed at the RIA. I spent the the bulk of my career at with the sole focus of trying to figure out like how do I find an opportunity where I can do the financial planning I love and not have to do the business development I hate. A couple of years into building the blog, well, it turns out when you put expertise on the internet for advisors, 
you know, you can help a lot of advisors and help the advisor community and it created some neat business opportunities. But, you know, Google doesn't really know who you are. It just follows who's searching for information, including consumers who started showing up and saying, hey, you know, read your stuff. Frankly, it seems a little complex, but you seem to know what you're talking about. You know, can you help us with this problem? And we started actually bringing in clients through the blog. And I ended up becoming a partner in the advisory firm in 2012, four years after I had gone out into this transition, dial back my time because I was actually bringing in enough business that suddenly I was able to become a partner. So funny always for how these journeys sometimes change from what you originally envisioned, like spent more than a decade building a career. So whatever I had to do, it would not involve business development and then ended up making partner by avoiding business development to the point that I made business development happen. <laughs> Many paths, the same result. But what happened over that five-year time period, so our, you know, I started bringing clients to the firm and, and became a partner at the firm. Then the firm actually launched a TAMP platform for other advisors. And we started working with other advisors, many of whom kind of found us through my blog and my writing and, and said, you know, love to learn more about the other stuff that you're doing. And here's what we were offering. If that's a fit for you, would happy to introduce you to my partners. We had also launched a recruiting business called New Planner Recruiting. So this really came out of the early days when I was involved in, in NextGen with another NextGen advisor named Caleb Brown. You know, Caleb had a, a ton of passion around career development and talent development for the next generation of advisors. And I had long been kind of immersed in that world from, uh, from getting started with NextGen originally. And so Caleb and I had come together also in the early 20 teens and said, well, what would it look like if we made a business together where, you know, Caleb really wanted to just do this recruiting thing, help newer advisors find paraplanner jobs. You know, we would always hear like for great financial planning firms would say, we can't find talent. And then we would talk to young financial planning talent coming out of colleges and they would say, I can't find any good financial planning firms. All, all I can find are sales jobs. We we're like, when the good people say they can't find the firms, the firms say they can't find the good people, like there's a problem here to solve in the marketplace. So so we launched this thing called New Planner Recruiting, where Caleb was going to drive the business as the recruiter, and then I would support on, on strategy and trying to help get the word out about what we were doing to younger advisors so that they could find this path for better job opportunities. And, and New Planner Recruiting started. Uh, and then obviously, as Alan, as you know, and sort of lived alongside, like in 2014, you know, we decided to launch this thing called XY Planning Network. And when we launched XYPN, like, lo and behold, we announced it on the blog and like a bunch of blog readers showed up. We're like, hey, this thing sounds neat. How do we join? And so I had this realization kind of heading into 2015 of, look, I had originally made this because I just, I was a nerd who liked learning things. I liked sharing what I was learning. I found other people kind of liked hearing about what I was sharing about what I was learning because we can all learn better together. And I and I built this blog and this platform and a speaking business. But suddenly all these other businesses were growing around me from sort of gaps I saw in the marketplace and, and people I was able to find who had a lot of excitement and passion to help solve that problem and saying like, well, let's work together. I can help build visibility for the business and 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 help with strategy. And you know, I have a great perspective on what's going on across the industry because I'm at conferences every week, all year long. You know, let's see if we can make this work. And so I got to the point of saying, I, you know, I think I really need to change this business model as I look at it. That you know, I'm I'm not just in the business of writing and speaking. 
I'm really just living in a business of let's give away as much valuable stuff as we can for free because the reality is, you know, like so few people ever actually need to decide to hire us to speak or work with the advisory firm or join XY Planning Network or any of the rest. And you know, kind of the economics of the business work fine, right? As as saying goes, like there's a lot of money in the in the money business. Like we're not selling cupcakes where I need a million people to sign up to have a big cupcake business. You know, clients pay a lot of dollars. You know, we spend a lot of money for the services that we provide in this industry. And so, you know, looking at this platform and saying, like, not only do we like, can we literally give away what we do to more than 99% of people and and the other one percent, you know. There's still enough to make the businesses grow, but we were actually already growing multiple different businesses at the same time, all from that minuscule subset of, of people that would read the blog and say like, oh, I heard Kitsis has this other thing as well. I actually need some help with that problem. Like I'm, I'm going to go over there and use and use that thing as well. And so we shifted in 2015 to say, all right, so I'm really just going to focus on content stuff. And supporting all these businesses that were creating to help solve advisor problems. And so it was XY Client Network, and then it was Advice Pay on, on payment processing for fee for service. Uh, and then it was FP Pathfinder, which is for flowcharts and checklists for financial advisors. So we are started adding all of these additional pieces, but the vision in my head was still like, I just kind of like doing my content thing and nerding out on stuff and, you know, sharing it out there with the advisor community and trying to help the advisor community. And so for a long time, I had this vision of, I'm going to keep this little hub around the blog, just, you know, myself and, and one person who was working with me and, and, and let all the other businesses grow. But, you know, I, one of the things I found from kind of early in my career was I'm actually not the biggest fan of managing people. I'm wired for nerding out on stuff. I'm not, I'm not wired for uh, team management. And so I always uh, said I wanted to keep the team really small. And so that changed, obviously, as you've noted, Alan. You know, over the past two years or so, you know, the the Kitsis.com platform has grown from a team of two to what is now a team of thirteen, probably fourteen by the time this podcast actually airs, because we're in the process of final interviews for the for the next person to join the team. And 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 really, you know, that that kind of drove for me off of two things. You know, one just you know, for all the growth that we've been able to have across the businesses and, and frankly, like particularly getting to work with you, Alan, on, on XYPN and advice pay, you know, I just, I've gotten such an appreciation of, you know, I enjoyed being what essentially was kind of a solo lifestyle practice of writing and speaking and some other businesses around it and enjoying what that lifestyle practice looked like to saying, you know, there's also some really cool stuff that you can do when you've got a great team with you. and. And so for me, just the the dream, there was sort of twofold. So one, like the dream and vision of all the stuff that we could do on the Kitsis platform was like, well, if we had more people, like we could do more webinar content. We could do it more regularly. We could have a broader base of writers with deeper expertise. We could start building out courses to go even deeper into some of these areas where I know we don't get training as advisors because I couldn't find the training and I still can't find it for our firm. Like seeing all these other opportunities of ways that we could help the advisor community, which we only get to with having a bigger team. And so on the one hand, like part of this driver for me was saying, just I'm ready to move the business to another level in a different place, just sort of mentally business-wise and the rest than I was 10 years ago to say, you know, totally happy to have built a, a sort of a lifestyle writing and speaking business as long as I was building it. 
but now I'm really ready to build something bigger that has a lot more impact out to the advisor community. You know, the flip side of it, or, or I guess the, the second part of it for me as well is just, you know, the businesses have grown so much, even, even outside of, you know, Buckingham, which itself has, I think we're almost 500 employees, but you know, I, I just joined, I, I didn't build that. I showed up for a very large firm to, to be a part of helping to hopefully get them to the next stage. But as I look at all, at all the rest, like XY Planning Network and Advice Pay and New Planner Recruiting and Pathfinder and, and Kits' team itself, like we're, we're over 90 crossing up on 100 team members across all of the different businesses. And so just at that size and scale, with basically all of that hiring happening from scratch in, in barely six years, you know, for me, that just become a, a, a team size and structure opportunity to say, you know, while I'm not, I'm still don't feel like I'm one that's managed, but that's wired for managing people. I still love to to help solve problems. I still love to help figure out business strategy. I still love to figure out how do we make solutions better for advisors, whether it's originally was writing about them and then it was consulting about them and then it was actually building them and and, and getting involved more directly that, you know, it got to a point for me where I, I can never move away entirely from the the writing and speaking because just, you know, it, it, it feeds my soul to some extent. That's how I can deal with 10 years of 50 to 70 speaking engagements a year and being a road warrior. But I was finding more and more excitement to work deeper in some of the businesses as well and try to see what I could do to help grow them and, and get them to the next level of impact. And just realizing for me, like that was not going to happen if a hundred percent of the platform rested essentially a hundred percent of the uh, on my shoulders with just one team member supporting the background to make sure that I was out there doing my thing. And so you know it was really kind of a combination for me of uh, you know I'm 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 ready to see the platform go to the next stage of impact. There's so much more we can do for the advisor community. You are gonna see a ton of stuff coming on the kids' platform over the next two years. There's a a very long roadmap of things in my head that we're starting to work on and build now to help the advisor community more. But, but at the same time, like I also wanted to change my role and position in the business. And so like, not only has the team grown larger, but it is not a team of like, okay, now there's 13 people I have to manage because I'm still not wired for, for management. And so I, I, I built the business recognizing like my strength as being in the, in the vision seat and the thinking seat, but not not the manager seat. So you know, we use a system called Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS for short in XYPN and Advice Pay. We we've implemented it at, at Kitsis.com as well. And and the whole nature of EOS is to recognize that you can, if you look at a lot of the most successful companies, you know, there tends to be sort of the the visible visionary that's out there, the the Bill Gates and Walt Disney and those types of folks. But when you actually drill down and look at the success of those businesses, like Bill Gates wasn't on his own. He had someone along with him. Steve Jobs wasn't on his own. He had someone along with him. Walt Disney wasn't on his own. It was actually his brother, Roy, that kept the business together and built the business. Walt actually, I think, bankrupted or nearly bankrupted Disney three different times. Uh, you know, brilliant visionary around the opportunity of Disney, terrible business manager. That wasn't his thing. And so... You know, EOS calls this the visionary and the integrator. And so realizing like I thrive in that visionary seat and I really, really don't thrive in that integrator seat. You know, I found someone on the team who can be in that integrator seat. And so, you know, Rachel Zeller is now our managing director. 
you know, and she lives the focused role of, okay, kids, this has all these crazy ideas in his head. Let's figure out how we translated this into action with the team. And, and I get to spend my time in the vision space where I have, can have the best impact on the business, but structure it so I don't have a giant team of direct reports. You know, team members report, directors report into Rachel. Rachel and I work together on leading the business. So I was very conscious around how to structure essentially the organizational chart of the business to make sure that I could both free up time to do more of the vision and strategy work I wanted to do it at on the Kitsis platform, and then also be able to do that for XYPN and for advice pay and for Pathfinder and for new planner recruiting and 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 trying to help Buckingham get to the next level in the work that it's doing. But just recognizing like I, I couldn't get there and do the work that I think I can do to have the best impact if I didn't substantively change the role and the structure of the business, which then has been a two-year path to hiring a dozen people <laughs> to join the team and help us figure out how to get to the next level. Now, I know what people are thinking. It took a dozen people to replace Michael Kitsis. Not exactly. Not exactly. I am a little bit of a workaholic. Yeah, maybe eight of them to replace you and then four to add new stuff. But it really is about adding, you know, both replacing, you know, much of the time consuming pieces that you were doing, as well as, you know, some of the new stuff that, that the platform can do to really help more advisors. And, you know, it's probably worth noting, maybe you can speak to this, that, you know, part of that is that that there is a trade off. And you and I have talked about, you know, that... When, when you have, when you're involved in so many things, you can't be all things to all businesses. You can't be all things to all people. And, and you have had to make hard choices about what are you going to be involved in? What are you not? You know, you can't wear the CEO hat of five different companies and be successful, right? And have an integrator at each. You might as well just have one big company with five or six direct reports. And so, you know, that those are, those are very real decisions that, that don't come easy to, to really work through. What are you the best at and, and where do you want to spend your time? And, and you can't do everything that you're really good at. You really have to be, be focused. You know, it, it, it's, you know, again, there's sort of like, there's the things that we do where we try to succeed for our hard luck. There's also the things that just sort of happen to us because of dumb luck and being in the right place at the right time. You know, like this is one of these things I just I attribute to the dumb luck of being in the right place at the at the right time. You know, when I was getting going with my career in, in the early two thousands, this was sort of the early stages of like George Kinder life planning and just what I'll, what I'll call a broad a broad discussion that started in the world of not just working with clients but practice management with advisors around. You build the business that fits your life, build the thing that lets you, you know, serve your highest and best use in the business and, and, and let go of or delegate the rest. And so this gets taught a lot of different ways, like, you know, find your strengths, focus on your highest, best purpose, you know, make a list of all the tasks that you do, assign a dollar amount to them. And if it's less than X dollars an hour, you delegate it and you just keep yourself focused on the high dollar amount value items. And then over time, you just keep inching that bar higher and delegating more, and you'll find yourself focused on more higher impact works. Like there's a lot of different ways that that gets framed. But it got ingrained in me really early in my career, this just sort of guiding philosophy of the more time you can spend doing you know, the, the stuff that you are uniquely the best at, uh, the more impact you can have and the better the outcomes tend to be. 
And, and just, it feels strange for me because even when I was like going to sessions and listening to stuff about this early in my careers, like this was mostly directed at what then were like roomfuls of advisors who were 50 something years old, who had been doing this for 30 years and were burned out with the old way of doing things. And we're getting this practice management advice about how to, how to find the passion again in your business and how to find your energy again by learning what you enjoy that gives you energy and delegating the rest. Like it was totally not targeted at 24 year old me at the time when I probably first started showing up and hearing some of these sessions, but I heard it and I heard it at the early formative stage of my career and just, I internalized it and stuck with me. And so, so much of what I've done over particularly the past sort of 12 or 13 years of my career has all, I, I think basically been this journey of like, find the things that you are uniquely the best at that only you can do in the business and figure out how to let go, don't do, or, or delegate everything else. Cause there's just only so much time in the day to actually get stuff done and do the things that you can do that have impact. And so, you know, that, that's been this, like, I feel like never ending series of reinventions for myself. Like I, as I look back, I sort of do this to myself about every three years, like clockwork throughout my career. Like, Started in 2000, it took almost three years to find the right advisory firm. Three years after that was when I started speaking. Three years after that was when I went out and launched the Kitsis Report. Two and a half years after that was when I launched the blog. Two and a half years after that was when I became partner of the firm. Two and a half years after that was when XYPN launched. Three years after that was when I made this shift to, to start growing the Kitsis team big. And like I feel like I'm on the cusp of another one now as our team is getting to a good size and we're, we're sort of gearing up for the next stage of growth. And so like every single one of those transitions, every two or three years, pretty much like clockwork is some path of, okay, did a thing in the business was very valuable to business, really moved the needle forward. But because the business has now moved forward and it's a different place, the thing I used to do that was most beneficial in the business is no longer the best thing to do in the business anymore. If I really want to get it to the next level, I have to do this other thing instead. And it's sort of this double-edged sword of, you know, if you don't keep evolving yourself as as a leader in a business, eventually the business will bottleneck around whenever it is you decide to stop growing. When you decide to stop growing and evolving, it will stop growing. And the flip side that I think I've, I've certainly dealt with and, and candidly like struggled with over the past two or three years in particular is it's one thing when you try to keep reinventing yourself to make sure that you move to the next level so the business that you're trying to lead can move to the next level. It's a whole other matter when the business actually starts compounding and growing even faster. And suddenly, uh, you know, for me, I feel like it shifted from, I kept trying to, you know, up my game and get to the next level and figure out what can I do next to really benefit the business to all of a sudden finding, oh, geez, these things are actually so compounding so quickly. I need to start making a lot of changes very quickly or I can't get out of my own darn way fast enough. And, and I'll admit like that has been, I think, a unique challenge of the past few years in particular, just for my own journey of, you know, it's cool when businesses start growing and you start getting traction, but you know, when the business grows fast enough, when you're in a leadership or a founder position, you have to change rather rapidly to keep up with the needs of the business. And that's been a struggle for me just because I, you know, even as much as I'm willing to to change and adapt and grow, like, you know, we're still human beings, we can only get there so fast in the time. And and that's really been a lot of the struggle for me in in the past few years is just 
making that evolution fast enough, you know, for, for almost any business, like going from, you know, 10 years with two employees to two years to 14 employees is kind of head spinning. And, and even there, it feels like barely been able to keep up with the amount of growth that's happening to make sure that I'm really spending my time in, in the areas that can be most positive for businesses. You know, that, that kind of leads me to my next question, which, you know, it's easy on on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast to talk about success. And, and you know, you you use the image of, you know, the, the iceberg and you see the top 10% and, and but you don't see the, the 90% of, you know, what effectively ends up being blood, sweat and tears and time and, and energy and, and pain and all of the things that go into the, the 10% of success people see. So if you look back, I mean, what would you say was sort of the low point in your career or, or, or the, 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 I guess maybe the hardest professional situation that you've had to deal with that and, and really overcome to get to where you're at today? Oh man. <laughs> so, so, so many points where you still like worry or question yourself of like, what am I doing? Am I, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I taking the right step? I, I, like, there's a bunch of these that come to mind for, for me, I mean, certainly like out of the gate, you know, essentially f- failing out of the first job I had out of college, trying to go back and say, basically, can I have the consolation job of the stuff I really like doing for $25,000 a year? And even getting turned down on that, that hurt. That was, that was rough out of the gate. Now, of course, the irony to that is once I got spited out of that job and then had to go find something else, I ended up finding something else that made almost $40,000, which is pretty good money then. So Ironic again, you never know what what doors open when another door closes. But like the moment of getting told no when I thought that was my only option left to be able to survive and stay in the business, like I I was worried of like the whole the whole path was over right there and I was gonna have to figure out what else I was gonna do because it wasn't psychology, theater, or medicine or finance, apparently. You know, the decision to to go out and launch the the speaking and writing business, you know. At best was you know, just full of fear and trepidation. I mean, I was walking away from a really good salary and really good opportunities and a great firm that was growing really well to do this crazy thing where I write my thoughts on the internet and email it to people and they're supposed to pay me for that. So like, it was freaky at the time. Then I did it anyways with you know some wonderful support from both the firm that I was at and, and from Bob Virus. And then a couple of months later, our industry almost got obliterated in the financial crisis. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I took this giant leap and walked away from salary to start an entrepreneurial endeavor in the financial services industry six months before the financial crisis and was really not sure that just the business and what I was doing was going to survive. You know, it, it obviously held up well enough. I'm still here. I was able to make it through in part because just the decade of my 20s, because I was, I was still... I guess it was really early 30s at that point. The decade of my 20s, you know, one of the things we talk about in the financial planning world is the phenomenon of lifestyle creep. And you're not making it, you know, being careful that as your income grows, your expenses don't grow with it. And in my 20s, I did really well at avoiding lifestyle creep. You know, when I was getting started and so like scrounging around for my, you know, trying to get $25,000 a year job, like, I moved into an apartment with two buddies. We split it three ways. Like I think my rent was like 300 bucks a month. And I had a car that was fully paid off because uh, I took... So in the 90s, I played Magic the Gathering because I was a nerd even then. 
I had an awesome collection of cards for anyone who follows Magic Gathering, like Mox's Black Lotus. I had all of that stuff I played back in the beta days of Magic the Gathering. And so when I was graduating college, I sold my Magic the Gathering cards, used the money to buy a car off eBay for cash so that I wouldn't have a car payment. And so I was living on cheap car I bought in cash with no car payment and a rent I was splitting with several buddies for a couple hundred dollars a month, which meant I did not spend very much. And and that frankly was what gave me the room to be able to make the transition, launch my business, survive through the, the financial crisis, despite having launched on the eve of it in the industry in the middle of this you know near depression, at least for our industry. Because I just, my expenses were still so low. I was still living in that same apartment and I had slightly upgraded only because I bought a second cheap car on eBay because the first one actually died of old age. So I just kept my expenses so, so low that I was able to survive through that that time period and, and get to the point where the growth really picked up. You know, it's also fair to say like you're still driving a car that's like 15 years old. Yes, I drive a 2005 Kia Spectra. So, you know, I did not buy it on eBay, but I did buy it as a trade in from the car that I bought on eBay. (laughs) You know, and and the importance there is, you know, with with COVID and everything we've been dealing with this year, obviously, you know, you used to do 50 or 60 speaking gigs a year, and suddenly you're going to do like 10 this year in person, and you've had to pivot. And, and I imagine that that sort of lifestyle creep or lack of lifestyle creep continues to be a benefit today that that has allowed you to be more flexible and try different things than you would have been able to, you know, should, should, you know, had you not done that. Very true. You know, he, I mean, even as it played out, like, I mean, basically once I survived the financial crisis and the business worked out, you know, the much of the savings I accumulated through my twenties, it was basically my business launch fund when I went on my own, then because the business worked out well enough and my expenses were very low anyways, all of that cash managed to still stay in the bank and, and build up. That ultimately became the down payment for the house that we moved into. And and now we've been nearly 10 years in this house and, and still like same house from 10 years ago. We haven't changed it or put any dollars into it because we were really happy with the house that we got in the first place. We found the right place that worked for us. And I'm still driving the car from back when I was renting for cheap. And so, yeah, it's certainly true. Like even today, just keeping expenses low and you know we don't live super cheap. DC is not an inexpensive area, especially with three children. But you know we have we have managed lifestyle expenses and really not crept up any of our core expenses. You know the the, the houses the house fits for us and the and the cars are all paid off and and you know we're going to drive them into the ground. And so yeah, having expenses that we've that we've kept low and not having the lifestyle creep up is, is what you know, allows the the household free cash flow as business grows a little to say like, I've got some dollars and I can actually reinvest this back into the business, back for more growth, back for more opportunities. I actually got to the point over the past 10 years because there are so many opportunities, at least for me, that I just, I find and see in our business landscape. Like, you know, I don't contribute to retirement accounts now, which I know is heresy in our financial advisor world. And like, it's not that I don't save, I save quite a bit, but you know, dollars that like if my dollars have been all tied up in a retirement plan, uh, there would be no kitsis.com or XYPN or advice pay or Pathfinder or Newplan recruiting or any of the rest because I never would have been able to make the leap 
because if the money was in a retirement plan, I wouldn't have been able to get it out when I needed to make the change in 2008. And I, and I wouldn't have taken the leap with, with no cash reserves. And, you know, for all the different journeys and jumps that we've made and, you know, businesses I've been able to start, some of which we started with very little dollars, some of which we had to put a, you know, a good sized chunk of money into to get it going, get it off the ground, you know, for all of those, like it, it only happened because our income grew faster than uh, our expenses. And like that was the free cash flow that ultimately became the thing that got invested into new business opportunities. And, and, you know, frankly, just the nature of growing and starting businesses. Yes, entrepreneurship has a very high failure rate. And I don't, I don't encourage anyone to take blind risks by any stretch, but starting a business that just survives, much less grows and gains some scale. Like there is nothing you will ever do in investing in the markets that comes close to the return that you get by investing in yourself for advancing your career, moving up, getting raises, getting promotions. And particularly if you are wired to actually go and try starting a business and building a thing of your own. We could talk for hours about what you just said, because I know we're going to get questions about it and you have, have written about and talked about that in the past. So we'll have to link to all of the, like any content around this. Pitches.com slash 200. We've got a, an article or two, because some people joke, like, you know, there is like an article for everything because I've written it down at some point. So we'll, kids.com slash 200, we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes to some of our, our prior writing and, and discussion around that. But it, it, it just, you know, again, like we, we so end up being, I think, products of the times and the era that we grow up in. You know, I'm a Gen Xer that launched my career on the eve of the tech crash. You know, like I was in this business for almost 13 years before the market got back to the day that I started. And most of my start of my career was watching about hearing about people who first they blew up their investments on margin when when the tech stocks crashed. Then they were so levered up that some of them had done it not only with margin in their accounts, but they did it with, you know, mortgages on their house. And and they went out and they lost their houses as well. And so you know, not that I am strictly debt averse, you know, we got a good size mortgage on the, on the house, you know, have, have borrowed tactically from time to time for business related issues as well. But it ingrained in me very early on this sort of viewpoint that fixed expenses and overhead, whether that's your rent or your car payments, or especially debt that you're carrying, especially consumer debt or purchasing spending debt that you're paying. Like it's not just the challenges of debt and you know you're paying interest instead of growing your money. Like debt and fixed overhead to me is all about fewer choices. And so much of what I've done over my career and the journey, you know, it it worked in very large part because I always kept the overhead and the debt low. And so I always had choices. And like, that was the choice that let me make the switch in 2008. That was the choice that let me put some dollars into some business opportunities for things like XYPN and advice pay. Like it doesn't start with sort of the investing decision. It starts with how do you handle your debt and your overhead in the first place? Because if you, if you take away all your choices up front, you know, your career ends up pretty linear because there's really not much else that can happen at that point. And, you know, certainly my journey has bounced around a lot more. Part of that is probably the ADHD in me that, that you know, sees a lot of shiny objects and pursues them. But like a big piece of that is how we handled our own 
household expenses and, and sort of all those decisions around debt and lifestyle creep and what kind of car do you drive? What kind of house do you buy? Like if we hadn't made those decisions, we wouldn't have been able to consider the other choices that actually ended up working out so well. You know, I have to admit, I don't get to win against you very often, but I think back of my 13-year career in financial services. I, I graduated with my first degree in financial planning in the summer of 2009. So let's just say since 2009, I guess 11 years, uh, the market has done significantly better than your first 11 years. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you crushed me on that. Something like yes. from 9,000 to 25 or something with the debt, whatever the Dow's at these days. So, you know, we, we got so many questions that we could go through and, and, you know, we didn't actually want this to become a 10 hour episode. So, you know, in terms of, sort of I, I feel like it would be on brands, but, but no, we won't. We it would be, uh, but I, I would need to take a break. So I, I'm actually going to keep the theme around sort of the personal, because I think a lot of people know sort of, you know, your take on, on the future of the industry and opinions and that sort of thing. And, and there will be opportunities to, to answer some of those questions in the future. But, you know, a, a lot of people are just sort of curious that you know, the, the man and the family behind the, the blue shirt, if you will, and, and sort of what makes this all tick. And so can you just talk, a, you know, just, you know, to go super detail, but just a little bit personally, you know, with, about the wife, about your wife and your kids and, and sort of the, the support that the support system you have in place that allows you to be successful uh, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. So I like first, I mean, I'll, I'll just kick off like my, my wife is a saint. And, and she is actually the superpower behind the scenes that makes all of this actually happen so that you know, I can do the work that that I'm trying to do. She is an amazing partner and has been with me for a very, very long time. So my, my wife and I actually met in college. And as I mentioned earlier, we went to Bates College, which is a, a very, very small liberal arts school up in Maine, the, the whole school, at least at the time, I think it's still similar, was less than 2,000 students for the whole school, undergrad only. My wife and I were in the same class graduating together. So there were only you know, probably 400 something in our graduating class together. We actually didn't date or know each other very well at, at, at college. We were sort of acquaintances with a lot of overlapping friends, which you know, is sort of inevitable when the school is that small, but had a couple of very close mutual friends, even though we didn't really know each other as more than acquaintances. But I grew up here in the D.C. area, and, and so did she. And so after graduating, you know, I moved back to the D.C. area from where I'd grown up, and, and I convinced a very good friend of mine from college, who was a good mutual friend of ours, to come down to D.C. as well and split an apartment with me. So he, you know, he was one of the, the two other guys that was in the apartment when, when we moved in together right after graduation. And so once we started hanging out together, because he and I were splitting an apartment, she started coming over and hanging out with us because he was the mutual friends right after we had graduated from college. And I had lost touch with a lot of my friends from the area and she had lost touch with a lot of her friends from the area. So we didn't have a big friends network. So, you know, we were sort of the, the college cohort that started hanging out where he was the common friend. And then we met each other and started dating and ultimately dated for almost 10 years because, you know, I have to analyze everything with great detail. Not that I ever questioned anything for her. I think she, you know, she was probably figuring it out of whether she wanted to deal with me for the long run. You know, we got married 10 years ago. So we've been married 10 years now, just had our 10 year anniversary uh, because in part we had uh, waited quite a while in, in dating for almost 10 years at the point that we decided to get married. You know, we were ready to get started with a family very shortly thereafter. So uh, you know, I've been married 10 years 
We have three children now. So my oldest just turns nine. My middle daughter is uh, almost seven. And then the, the youngest baby boy is turning five soon. And so, you know, we make this work in part. Uh, my wife is home full time with the kids. Turned out, frankly, to be particularly fortuitous in an environment of the pandemic and the fact that our school system closed completely. So all of our children are home full time for school all day, every day. And so, you know, we were able to make this work in part because, you know, she, she grew up in a household where her father worked and her and her mother was home full time with the family. She was the third of four and had, had grown up in a household with, with a lot of kids and, and said like she wanted to follow the same journey. I, you know, I, we were able to make it work. I, I was in full support of it. And so, you know, it has, I think, in practice been a material factor for the ability for me to do the work that I do because like she is home full time as a stay at home mother. And so, you know, she's able to field, uh, you know, the, the problems that come up with the school and getting kids to the sports activities. If I can't go and watch and, you know, the kids that get sick and need pickups and all of those things, you just, that's how we were able to divide and divvy things up around the house so that I can be the road warrior that I've been for driving the the growth of all these various businesses and just and be able to make it work. And I think it's it's important to say like most entrepreneurs do have a partner that that's supporting them and, and it's why you have to be so quite frankly intentional about who you ultimately you know, choose to be your partner and, and and spend the rest of your life with because it is so critical that that if you're you know in your case if your wife was sort of anti you traveling or anti you being an entrepreneur or wanted more stability this thing would never have worked you know it's not just about her being uh, her staying at home I mean you could you could hire a nanny you know if if you had to and and you know you could pay to replace some of what she's doing in the house if she wanted to work and have a career. But that's not the point. The The point is that she's supportive of your entrepreneurial journey and the risk and rewards and the, the craziness that comes with that, which is so critical for those of you, particularly younger, you know, thinking about becoming entrepreneurs one day or know that's in your path, you know, you need to be really intentional in that area of your life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting as a as an extension of it as well, like just looking at this balance, and we even actually did a a study on this for for Kitsis Research. Like when we were doing some of our our analysis and demographics work, just around advisor trends, we actually found like a a, a astonishingly high number of financial advisors are married with an incredibly low divorce rate. Uh, I, I think it was something like ninety one percent of financial advisor firm owners are married and the and the divorce rate was single digits, which is much lower than the than the country at large. So like I, I don't know quite what to read into that. I guess you can read into that as you as you wish from whatever perspective. But I I, I do think, Alan, it, it, it speaks to the the kind of the fact and just this reality of, you know, particularly when you're building and launching businesses, like it's hard, it's brutal, it's difficult, even when it goes well, it's still a an immense roller coaster. And so at best, you need a spouse that's on board and supportive. Because if if he or she is is tearing you down, there's no way it's going to survive. You know, if he or she is helping to build you up, like maybe you'll get through enough of those low points to uh to actually get to the other side. And and I do think at least in a retrospect, it it did help. Like one of the one of the pluses for having dated so long, like you know, she dated 
me before I was getting going with my career. She dated me as the career started getting going. She dated me the first time, before the first time I ever went out for a speaking engagement. And then when I started doing five a year and 10 a year and 20 a year and 30 a year. So I guess at least in retrospect, the good news, like, I, I think she did have a sense as to what she was getting into by, by the time we were getting married. You know, the, the, one of the upsides of, of a, of a 10 year dating process. We, we were pretty clear on what we were getting into by the time we, we got there and decided to get married. You know, sort of building on that, people always ask me, you know, does Michael ever sleep? Yes. In fact, if you go somewhere on your website still, you can find the uh, the Fitbit proof that Michael does in fact sleep. So can you talk a little bit about sort of your productivity, time allocation, how you how you are able to balance family, work, hobbies, if you have any? That that was one. I, I, we got a bunch of questions about what hobbies or activities does Michael do outside of work or, or is work his hobby? In terms of time management, you know, as, as we were talking about low points, you know, again, like I think I had had a, a few, you know, get like get, getting turned down, you know, for my like consolation job after not qualifying for my primary job at the insurance company was definitely a low point. You know, launching the advisory business, or excuse me, the uh, uh, speaking consulting business in the face of a giant financial crisis in our industry was was definitely a low moment. You know, some of the challenges of the past few years. Uh, of just like trying to evolve myself in the business as fast enough to keep up with what the businesses need for me to keep going has has been a challenge at a low point. But one of the hardest points I think I hit was really it's probably about 2016 that you know like XYPN was going really well, the advisory firm was doing really well, the speaking business was absolutely booming. New planner recruiting was growing. We were just starting to, to I think, brainstorm and, and, and flesh out what advice pay might look like. All this stuff was firing well. And, and there was so much stuff coming at me that I was just, you know, saying yes to all the stuff that I could, like all these cool opportunities, really energized by all the, all the stuff that was out there and really excited about it uh, and just absolutely buried and blitzed myself, you know, seven days a week working with new land kind of stuff. And, and realized like I had to change how I handled and managed my time because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where to draw the line because, you know, just it, it's sort of one of the, the, the sad ironies of, of sort of business growth. And when it goes well, like when your business is not growing, it's really frustrating because you want to grow more and it's hard to find opportunities. When your business is growing really well and you're not necessarily looking at opportunities, a lot of people start knocking on your door with cool opportunities. And so, you know, I got myself absolutely buried and just couldn't figure out how to draw the line for it and build a system that I, I really still live to this day. So it, it, it comes from this analogy that at least I had first heard from Stephen Covey that, you know, if you think about your time in, in the day or in the week, so envision uh, like a glass jar in front of you, like a big glass mason jar. So the mason jar is your fixed container of time. Like we all get the same 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. It is not changing. It is unequivocally and absolutely fixed for all of us. But you get to decide how you fill the jar. And so you can think of the things that you put in the jar at a, at a couple of different levels or types. There's sort of the, the fine grain sand, just the, the little never-ending bits of stuff that come at you, the, you know, the email notifications that come forever and, and the social media messages and the, someone who knocks on your door and says, hey, you know, can, I, can I pop in and ask you a question from at least back when we were in offices and people can knock on your door and do that. You know, then you get some things that are a little bit bigger and more important. Like, these are kind of like pebbles. 
you know, well, there's a slew of emails, but like, I really have to get back to the, the clients on that issue today. And, you know, there's a couple of meetings coming up, but like this one meeting later in the week is, is, is pretty important. Like I really got to do some extra prep for that. And then there are a few things that are like the big rocks, like the big heavy stuff, the sorts of things that will actually move the needle forward for your work, your business, your career. You know, there was an essential client meeting today. Like I have to get this financial planning prep done today so that I'm on track for the meeting next week. You know, we've got to get a new marketing campaign going. If I don't sit down and write the initial proposal, it's never going to happen. So I have to get that done today. And so the way most people end up doing it by default, you know, the sand is never ending. It's always coming at us. It fills much of the jar. We realize there's a few of those pebbles that are sort of like the, you know, the urgent, important things. We pick it up, we deal with it, we drop that in the jars while we get that done. And then by the time you finally get to the rock, like you can't put the rock in because the jar is like 90% full with sands and a couple of pebbles. So if you just envision like trying to stuff a big rock into a jar that's 90% full of sand and pebbles, like it's just not getting in there. It's going to sit and spill over the lip of the jar. If you want this to work, like you got to dump all of it out. Start with a clean bottle, and the first thing you do is you put the big rock in. You put the big rock in first. You know it's going to fit because the jar's empty right now. Then you grab the pebbles and you drop the pebbles in. So if you envision like you know a big cylindrical glass mason jar and a big rock in it, if you drop now some pebbles in, like the pebbles are going to kind of go to the corners of the jar where there are gaps between the cylindrical jar and the round rock. Then comes the sand. Right? There's still a whole bunch of gaps in this jar around the giant rock and a bunch of pebbles around it. So you can pour in the sands now. The sand, I guarantee you, will fill every single possible nook and cranny of the rocks and the pebbles that are distributed around them. But when you run out of the jar, when you run out of room in the jar, the only thing that's left that didn't get in is the sand. That by definition is the stuff that mattered the least. It's always there, it's always present, it's hard to turn it off. But if you pour this pit the big rocks in first, you pour the sand in last. You are by definition always getting done every day the things that are most urgent and important. And so I took this to kind of the logical extreme because A, that's what I do, and B, like I was in a bad place on on uh, overworking even for someone that works a lot of hours. And so I literally made what ended up being a calendar my entire year. And every single day of the year, I set a big rock on the calendar. Like here's the one thing that's most important and impactful that day. So like, Monday is going to be my team meeting day. I'm going to put all my team meetings on Monday. And just as long as I get my team meetings done on Monday, that big rock for the day is accomplished. Tuesday might be a speaking engagement. We've got to go out on the road. We're going to do an event. If I'm doing an event, like not much else important is getting done that day. Sure, I can answer a couple of emails from the airport, but, but that's going to be the thing. Wednesday, like need to go in the advisory firm office for a client meeting. We've got you know a big client that got a really messy tax situation. I'm going to need like a few hours of the analysis work and check it that morning and then we'll meet with the client that afternoon. It's like, that is the rock for the day is like, that's an advisory firm day. And so I literally had to make rocks for every single day of the year to finally figure out like, okay, this is just what it adds up to. Like if you come up with more speaking or consulting or new businesses or, or advisory firm stuff or, or meetings or the rest, like if you can't find a day left on the calendar, you can't say yes to it. And it was literally the only way I could figure out how to figure out where the capacity was. And then over the past several years, I have tried then to rejigger that balance. I mean, I think in the first year, like I had to basically schedule every day of the year just to work through the amount of commitments that I had. 
the following year, I'm like, well, I'm only going to do rocks six days a week and I'm going to not set rocks on Sunday so that I can get some family time back. Then eventually, then the following year is like, I'm going to pull back most of the Saturdays. Still couldn't quite get all of them back because we hadn't grown the team as much yet to be able to delegate, but I'm going to try to pull those rocks back. You know, this year, at least before the pandemic made things a little bit screwy. The goal was to was to reclaim my weekends and get get you know enough stuff delegated and hands off to get to the down to the point where at least the rocks would fill the week, but not spill over to the weekends. Maybe some pebbles and sand. I still check some email and do some work on the weekends. I'm not I'm not out of it completely, but I don't have heavy lift projects on the weekends anymore. I've been able to to adjust the workload accordingly, and so like that that system you know, I kind of like call it like daily rocks or daily themes system like each day has the theme of the particular item uh, which is the only way particularly in an entrepreneurial world with a lot of different endeavors and kind of pokers of the fire at the same time it, it was the only way to figure out how to create a time management structure to both a just figure out where the real hard capacity line was because you know otherwise we just get so stuck in the day-to-day moment to moment, it's really hard to figure out, like, if I say yes to this, am I really going to be hurting myself in four months? It's hard to tell sometimes. And so just trying to figure out where that capacity line was, and then ultimately figure out how to rejigger and restructure the balance. Like that was the time management system I built. And and I still live it every day, like waking up, okay, what's the, what's the daily theme for the day at the beginning of the week? I just kind of look out at the week, get my head wrapped around, like, okay, that's a writing day, that's a speaking day, that's a team day, that's a meetings day, that's an advisory firm day, and making sure I know what the theme is for each day so that I can get in with the right focus and make sure I do the things that are most important for moving the business forward. So that's an awesome overview of sort of, you know, your work-life productivity and how you're managing that. I, I know we got a lot of questions about like, what does Michael do for fun? And and I do want to preface this with you have three young kids. As someone with two young kids, I understand that, you know, people, oh, what'd you do this weekend? Like, nothing. I survived, you know, I survived yes. the weekend. <laughs> so this answer will change as, as kids get older, but yes. And admittedly, you know, we, we have probably even more of that now when just kids have been home continuously for pretty much seven months and still counting. So I, yeah, like these days in practice, just most of my spare time when not doing, when not doing work, it's just spending with family, spending with the kids, also spending with the broader family. So, you know, I'm here in the DC area, not just for having grown up here in the DC area, but I literally, I live about a mile and a half up the, ha- up the street from the house I grew up in. My parents are still there. Uh, we're barely 20 minutes from uh, my in-laws. Uh, they are still in the house that my wife grew up in. So, you know, we are definitely like, I am a set roots person. Like I can run around with my hair on fire because the foundation is very firm <laughs> and set. And so as I joke, sometimes like, I am I am moving away from the house that I grew up in at a pace of about a hundred feet a year. Which is about the reason that's the only real reason you're not in Bozeman, Montana right now. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Like I have I you know, I've 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 lived in the same two mile radius basically my entire life. And just yeah, uh very emotionally attached to the area with very deep roots and and all of the family here. So so you know, we're we're doing lunch usually at my folks' house. You know, my wife is at least off with the with the kids start up to my in-laws, I go when I'm able to go because uh, they're a little bit further. So it takes a little bit more planning for the schedule sometimes. And, you know, a, a lot of evenings and and particularly these days in a, in a pandemic environment where I'm not traveling is, you know, uh, uh, reading Harry Potter uh, with my oldest. You know, we get through half a chapter to a chapter a night. We've now gone through book four, although probably going to have to 
wait until she gets a little bit older before book five because it gets a little bit scarier. And, you know, reading with my uh, middle daughter as well, you know, the youngest we can read to him, he's not quite reading on his own uh, yet, aside from some picture, some picture books, but just like spending time doing kids bedtime routine and, and reading and, uh, and getting to hang out with them, you know, back, well, back in the days of having a little bit more time and out of the pandemic environment, uh, you know, because we're here in the, you know, I'm here in the area that I grew up and, and my folks nearby. So one of my longstanding hobbies is that I play bridge. So I actually started playing very young, probably like 13 or 14 years old. I was actually a, a competitive bridge player through high school and college, got to take several trips around the world in my teens and early 20s as part of the, the USA Junior team for for bridge. So I've always kind of been wired to, you know, cards and a wide range of nerdy stuff. You know, once career and job got going, you know, competitive bridge did not really have any time left in the schedule. But there's a, a, a just a local bridge club game at the uh, local community center that my father and I have now been playing at basically every every Wednesday that it's open and I'm not traveling for almost 30 straight years now. Uh, now closed with the pandemic and I'm hoping there will still be enough people around to put the game back together after it reopens. It is a bridge like many things is suffering from its own age demographics. It makes the financial advisor industry look really, really young by comparison. Bridge clubs in, in the DC area have a significant problem of all of the people who played at them for a really long time keep retiring to Florida and reducing the number of local bridge players. But, you know, almost 30 years playing bridge every Wednesday with my father at the local club. And actually for many years, I was a pretty hardcore gamer as well. In, in I am the, the child of two computer scientists. So I, you know, like, I grew up with computers around from a very, very young age. I was like hacking my own video games in the Commodore 64 because my, my father taught me how and have, have always had a very close connection, both sort of the computer and technology world in general. I think that's kind of my attachments to you know, FinTech in our an advisor tech in our in our modern business environments, but you know I was heavily into computer programming in middle school and high school. That almost ended up being the career that I ended up in and pursuing computer science. My my number two choice, if I didn't go to Bates College, would have been to uh, Case Western Reserve for their engineering program, and 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 would have been in the computer science department. So I was almost in a very different direction. I still don't do much for coding anymore, but. But I'm still a pretty hardcore video gamer as well and have been, you know, as much as I can throughout. So for for people that know sort of the the video game universe, like I was someone who played MUDs in the nineteen nineties, got into the MMO world with World of Warcraft in the mid two thousands. I was in World of Warcraft world, a main tank helping to lead raids for a fairly hardcore raiding guild. So think several hours uh, uh, a night, several days a week in like pre-scheduled raids where 25 or 40 people have to show up at the same time and do a highly coordinated 10 to 15 minute battle where if one person does one thing wrong for three seconds, everybody dies. It's actually a really interesting exercise in leadership and group dynamics. I've, I've <laughs> so always true. said like, like uh, show me someone who has been a successful raid leader in a World of Warcraft guild and like, I know you can manage any any team. <laughs> it, 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 anything in an office environment is easier than hurting gamers on the internet to do a highly coordinated 
fight and beat me in the reach timer. So unfortunately, as, as the business travel world picked up, World of Warcraft raid times got very difficult to make because I ended up being on airplanes that were flying someplace when I was supposed to be in raid. So the that end of the gaming side is kind of dialed down because like, I just don't have the time that I that I used to. But you know, I, I still always keep a couple of games on the on the smartphone. Right now, it's Clash Royale and Star Wars: Galaxy of Heroes. Fair enough. So you learn something new every day. I fortunately was able to avoid World of Warcraft. That that just like will suck you in. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so beautiful. And and, and like and I, I should note as well, like I, I had the I had the the ultimate gaming opportunity because I got my wife into it. My wife played as well. I was a tank, she was a healer. We raided together into dungeons together. Like it was wonderful. At some point when the kids are old enough, like we'll send them off to do our activities and we'll be back into well, it might literally be World of Warcraft because the darn thing is still going after like 15 years. But if it's not War, if it's not WoW, it'll be whatever it is that comes next. But I'm 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 determined to get back to that with my wife at some point when we are when we are out of little little kid phase. You know, as we're sort of wrapping up, you know, th- this podcast has been dedicated to you know to to success and and financial advisors and business owners and entrepreneurs who have ultimately you know, are building or have found success for themselves. But as you've noted many times, success is different for every person. And, and, you know, isn't that really what financial planning is about is helping our clients understand what success in life really means to them. And yet we spend so little time, I feel like as financial planners, really thinking about that for ourselves. So as you think about, you know, your career and and where your time is being spent, you mentioned, you know, that wanting to have a dent in the world or, or leave a dent in the world. How do you define that success? How do you define the debt that you want to leave and, and when you will have achieved that, you know, for yourself? For me, it, it really is kind of the the success driver for me is is sort of this combination of impact and legacy are the 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 words that that come to mind to me. You know, I I, I think I have my career, my journey has just always been drawn in this direction of if I can do a thing that helps more people and reaches more widely, it tends to be the thing that I end up pursuing as a direction. Like, I think that's, that's why ultimately I went from the advisory firm to, to doing, you know, writing and speaking. I think that's part of why, even as some of the businesses have built, uh, like I love doing some of the work that we're doing in those businesses, but I, I can't entirely move away from the, the blog, not just because there are some you know, business dynamics around it, uh, but just like, I, I have this need to, share and have a platform where we can get stuff out there that has impact and and benefits the advisor community. And, you know, if I can look back down the road and say like, you know, here are the ways that the industry shaped and shifted and altered and and be able to say like, and, you know, I think I actually got to play a little role in that and, and, and make a dent in the, in the universe and the, the path that the profession took. Like that's, that's what success looks like for me. It's, it, it is around that, that impact. I think the, the second piece that I've really found just in, I guess, my own journey, like the layer, I think even that I would add to this from the podcast from a few years ago, I guess I'd have to go back and, and listen. I think I answered this question then as well. So someone can go back and check and see how I did or, or how much it changed. I think there's this phenomenon as, as well that you know, when, when we do the work that is our best work, it, it, it creates energy, right? Like, I think at the end of the day, the whole reason why I can do is the stuff that I do and, and spend what is still a pretty large number of hours 
working and still be able to come to it with, with excitement and energy. Like I'm excited to look at my email every morning. I'm excited to dive into my day every morning because I really enjoy what I do, the impact we're having. I, I know we're helping to change advisors' lives. I know that helps to impact and benefit clients' lives. And like that's exciting and it gives me energy. And just being able to do work where I'm still excited to get out of bed every day to do it, to me, is a, is a huge driver of what, what success means to me. And, you know, it's why even as I look at this, like, I can't imagine ever retiring. Like, there, there's, there's nothing to me that sounds worse than making a deliberate decision to not have a thing I can wake up to every morning that gives me the purpose and impact that I'm able to have with, with the platform we built and that we'll keep compounding as long as we can keep growing and compounding. And so like, I, I think part of it for me is, is that blend of impact and legacy. I, I think a part of it is just being able to do work that gives me energy every day when I, when I wake up and, and go out in the world to do what I do. And, you know, frankly, now at, at the, the stage of life that I'm at with, with family and being a parent, you know, I, I, I now feel that, you know, that additional layer of, of opportunity for success and, 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 and pull for, for time of focus of saying, you know, and, and it's really important to have that kind of, that kind of impact and legacy that comes with, you know, having a wonderful family and raising wonderful children and, and setting them on a positive journey for, for their lives as well. You know, we're, we're still in the early stages, uh, you know, who knows where they're going to go. I, I don't have any particular attachments to them coming into the industry or not, but just, you know, knowing that we're setting them on their own journeys to have their own path of, of impact and legacy in the world and, and hopefully finding some way that we create an environment where they can pay it forward into the future as well, you know, is one of those things that, you know, I, I don't know that I like started a family with this vision of, I must have children to leave a legacy to the world. But yeah, you know, I, like I can, I have felt that grow and stir within me as a parent from, I guess, pretty much the moment that you hold your baby for the first time of saying like, wow, I've, I've introduced this other, other opportunity for impact and legacy in my life. And I, I, I can't wait to shape that over the years as well. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to come on and, and interview you and hear more about your story and, and what drives you, what gets you up in the morning, what you're working on. I know that, you know, in the end, you and I sometimes joke that if, if you could go back and tell, you know, your 15 year old younger self that one day you'd be famous to a pretty big group of people. It'd be a little mind blowing, but you know, in the end, there, there's a whole lot of folks in this industry who are grateful that you ultimately came into financial services, didn't end up in technology or pre-med or theater or psychology in a way combined some of the elements of all of those. But uh, thank you from, from all the listeners, you know, through me for all the work that you've done and the impact that you've made. You've certainly made the dent in the world that, that you wanted to leave. And I suspect before you're done, it'll be a bit of a crater. So thanks for, again, for letting me come on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it for for having you join us. And I still feel like I'm just getting started. So we'll see if we can make the dent a little bigger before we're done. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits 
along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.